Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I recall a conversation that I had with a former college classmate, this young lady. Uh, I, I used to talk to her from time to time whenever there was a lull in lecture or whenever there was time to do that sort of thing. On one occasion, this classmate learned that I was a Christian that I believed seriously in the whacked-out concepts that the Bible teaches. And she was amazed that I could believe that a man was swallowed by a giant fish and he was vomited out three days later and lived to tell the tale. She was amazed that uh, I could believe that, that the Red Sea would part so that God's people could pass through. She was amazed by all these things. And I remember telling her, well, just wait until you hear what I believe about the virgin birth and about the resurrection of the dead. Because that will blow your mind. But she didn't really take the bait. She didn't really express much of an interest in exploring those concepts or whether that was true. She kind of diverted the conversation really quick. Because she had been a Christian at one time, she said. And the reason that she gave for no longer being a Christian was this. Here's what she told me. She said, it just didn't work for me. It just didn't work for me. It's, it seemed as if she understood Christianity as something that was meant to unlock something in her life, like some hidden potential, or that Christianity was something that was going to improve her situation drastically, or that it was going to grant her some kind of success with some kind of endeavor. It just didn't work for me. And it wasn't for lack of trying, she said. So I pressed her further, and I asked her, what do you mean by that? And she gave me this long list of horrible things that she had endured as a Christian. And it was a long list. She had been through some tough, tough life situations, no doubt about it. And she had, in the midst of that, she had taken up the Christian faith to help her face some of those hard things. And when those circumstances in her life that really put the clamps on her, whenever those tensions did not lessen in her life, she decided that it was not worth the trouble. We too, in this room, we often ask ourselves, what must be wrong with our faith even when, even in the midst of those circumstances? We even ask ourselves, what must be wrong with our God when we find ourselves constantly struggling with something? We either think something is wrong with my faith or this religion does not work. And we have those questions because, I'll tell you, we have learned somewhere along the way to conceive of God's grace as translating into a life that is free of trouble and free of struggle. This is what our culture teaches us implicitly in everything that we consume. We've come to understand the Christian life as what Martin Luther called a theology of glory. Can you say that with me? Theology of glory. That's what Luther called it. It's, it means that we perceive that following Jesus means a get-out-of-hell-free card and that we roll into the kingdom in a Rolls Royce. This is an American version of Christianity that we're all too familiar with. It's, it sells in many bookstores. It's proclaimed in many churches. It generates a lot of dollars and cents. But biblical Christianity, the real nitty-gritty baptismal life, turns us into what Luther called theologians of the cross. A theology of the cross. Let's say that together. Theology of the cross. It means that faith compels us to live in this constant tension, a daily paradox of struggle. And today I'm calling it the holy hitch in your get along. 
So my grandpa used to say, he said, is there a hitch in your get along? You know what he meant by that? You got a little limp. You're walking with a limp. Is everything okay? And the type of living that I'm talking about should not be a, a surprise to us because the Lord actually prepares us to live in this way. In our gospel lesson this morning in Luke chapter 18, he uh, prepared his disciples not for lives of ease and comfort, but he actually told them to engage that tension with persistence in prayer. In our Old Testament lesson, of course, shows us what it means to daily live in this paradox this tension. We have this strange account of Jacob in a wrestling match against God himself. I wonder what my old college classmate would have thought about this story. Jacob would be go on, uh, he would go on to be named Israel because of this contest against the Almighty that, that night there by the Jabbok River. And as weird of an account as this is, ad, admit, admittedly, and it is weird, it has significant meaning for your daily life as a Christian because you too live in the tension that faith brings. You too live in this constant struggle, this paradox. You live the Christian life with a holy hitch. On one hand, life is awesome because you've been given the kingdom and everything that goes along with that. You've been given salvation and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in God's kingdom. But on the other hand, it's also very difficult. And Jacob's match against God helps us to navigate that tension, this tension that I'm talking about, and it helps us to keep it in its, proper, in its proper place, its proper perspective. Because if we overshoot or if we mismanage our expectations for the Christian life, it can produce some really bad fruit. Indeed, it can even cause some people to walk away from the faith, like the woman that I mentioned. So I'd, looked, I'd like to look today at two misconceptions about the Christian life. And here they are. The first is the myth, of, uh, the myth about struggle, and the second is the myth about grace. And as we deal with these misconceptions, I want to compare them to what happened with Jacob. So first, we misunderstand the struggle. There's this myth about what it means to struggle because what is imprinted on our, on our DNA from a very early age is that there's no such thing as a free what? Ride. Ride, lunch, what have you. Same deal, right? There's no such thing. And so we approach the Christian life in this way. We think that it's our efforts, we think that it's our merits that earn our way into God's affection. We trust that we've done enough, that we have struggled enough and that God owes his good gifts to us. That he owes it to us. You may not say those things out loud, but I guarantee that this is what your sinful nature, your old Adam, actually thinks about your relationship with Jesus and the arrangement that you have. So we default to these foolish thoughts like, like this, I get eternal life because I follow Jesus. That kind of sounds pious, doesn't it? But that's not why you get eternal life. It's the other way around, isn't it? You actually follow Jesus because you have eternal life. We can't get the cart before the horse, but we do. Or how about this one? I get the heavenly kingdom because look at all the Christian notches in my belt. I can show up to Jesus one day and I can show him my baptismal certificate. I can show him my confirmation certificate. I can show him that, uh, you know, I was a congregational president. Huh? I'm just kidding, John. So, 
the Christian notches in our belt make us think that God might owe us something, right? And it's why at funerals, more often than not, there's a good amount of time talking about the good deeds of the deceased rather than on the merits of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Even if it's a Christian funeral, because ultimately what we do, what we end up doing is throwing our faith back upon the struggle in our ability to perform for God, to jump through all the hoops. And it's by that we think that we've truly earned what God intends to give us freely in the blood of his son. Consider Jacob on the night that he was camping by the Jabbok River. He brings nothing to the equation. He had struggled and clawed his way through life since he was in the womb with his own brother. The text literally says, uh, uh, Genesis uh, 25, I want to say, it, it, it says that he struggled against his own brother Esau in the womb. He would go on to wrestle away Esau's very birthright. He would wrestle away, he would steal the blessing from his own father that was intended for his older brother. And Jacob was a theologian of glory until that night by the Jabbok River because he thought that the kingdom of God consisted in an upward trajectory of getting more, more stuff, more material goods, more blessings that he strived to earn, or in his case, what he bamboozled others for. But he was empty-handed that night by the Jabbok. He was empty-handed, and that is exactly the way that God likes us. He was headed for a meeting with Esau. It was the same brother that he had taken advantage of. And chances were that this was going to be a hostile situation. Something was going to go down. He had previously been chased down by his uncle, who he had hoodwinked for the last time. So there was another wrestling match there. And he was out of options. And it was in that struggle, it was in that wrestling match that took all night long that the Lord managed to teach Jacob a lesson about the nature of faith. Think of what God did that night for Jacob. Rather than use all of his power for the sake of subduing Jacob just with a snap of his finger or with a word from his mouth, he actually put himself in the same weight class. He put himself in the same weight class as Jacob. He took on human form, a pre-incarnate version of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and he made it so that Jacob could get his arms around him and even persevere. And by the end of the match, by the end of the match, we hear Jacob confessing his own name to the Lord, to which the Lord gives him a new name and a blessing attached to it. He says, Israel. Your name is no longer Jacob, but it is Israel. And Israel means he that strives with God. He who wrestles with God. Or another way you can take it is God strives. Jacob had a new identity. Not only as one who had striven with man, because he did that since he was in the womb. But now someone who strove with God. And in turn, God would strive for Jacob. That was the blessing, the promise attached to this new name. Think about what he did for Jacob. Jacob did nothing to will this blessing into existence. God, in, this is often what we think about. Well, Jacob had to, he had to really dig in his heels and get God to give up that blessing. Don't you think God wanted to give it to him the entire time? Don't you think that there's a reason that God put himself in the same weight class as Jacob? 
He took on a form that Jacob could grab hold of for the sake of that blessing that he wanted to give to him. He even made himself beatable to give it to Jacob. Now think about it. In the same way, in the same way, our Lord Jesus comes to you. He came to you in the incarnation to suffer and die, to rise again, and now He comes to you in the means of grace, in the Word and in the sacraments, so that you can hear Him, so that you can believe in Him, so that you can lay hold of Him, so that He may bless you. And it's not because of the struggle or the works that you do. It's the gift that He gives to you freely in His own blood through His own death and His resurrection. It's the gift of eternal life that is yours by faith. Now as for the myth about grace. So we make one error when we misconceive the struggle, but we also make an equal and opposite error when we misinterpret what God's grace means for us. This salvation by faith and what it means in our lives. We become theologians of glory again, but in this way. In this way, we tend to expect things from God based not on His promises, but based on what we think He ought to give us. Again, this is a theology of glory. Think of the young lady I I, I talked about in the beginning. She was a theologian of glory. If I had to guess, she had bought into a version of Christianity that promises all of your problems and struggles go away if you just say this prayer, or that being a child of God means being free from suffering. You see this type of thing regularly in the American church today, right? Churches are a dime a dozen uh, uh, in our area and definitely in the Bible Belt. But if you just canvas our area, go on some of these church websites and read their their statements of faith. And I guarantee you, in about six out of ten of them, you will find some variation of this doctrine that they call full atonement. Okay? Full atonement. And here's what they mean by that. What they mean by full atonement is that atonement is not just about Jesus making us right with God through His blood, but that it also means the guarantee of full and complete healing in this life. To which I'd like to ask them, then why are you still dying? But I digress. But if that's true, what are we to make of Jacob's struggle? What are we to make of Him wrestling against God. He was blessed by God, but it was in the context of that great struggle. It took all night for crying out loud. When I was in high school, one of my friends had this huge backyard and we couldn't really break anything. So we would go into his backyard and there was about six or seven of us and we would literally wrestle. And when I say wrestle, it's like we would lock up and try to wrestle one another to the ground, and it would, each one would take like two or three minutes, and we would, we would see who had the more strength, like who could prevail, who could pin the other to the ground. And of course, I didn't win very many of them. I actually probably won one or two. That's probably about it. Uh, but it was really just to see who was the strongest. But I could remember those matches that took two to three minutes, how exhausted we were at the end of just those little matches. How could Jacob go for so long? How could he do this? This was a man who was fixated on the promise. 
This was a man who wanted to go for the blessing such that he would do anything to get it. And in the end, he did get it, but only after God popped his hip out of socket. Jacob had prevailed against God by faith. He, he had subdued him. But God submitted Jacob just as well, such that Jacob would walk with a limp. He would have a holy hitch in his get-along for the rest of his life. And it's in the life that is submitted to God that Jacob found his blessing. Because from then on, he actually called God the, the God of his fathers, the God of Jacob. Didn't happen up to this point. Now that he's got a holy hitch, now that he's been marked as one of God's own, this is his God. Christians, we likewise walk with a limp. Because we struggle against, we wrestle and we strive with God. And it's not a matter of whether the Christian faith works, but a matter of understanding that the baptismal life is the life lived under the cross, where by faith we endure the same trials and tribulations and that we press toward the goal of eternal life. While at the same time, we know that God has blessed us with eternal life, with the forgiveness of sins, here and now, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a paradox for which there is no neat bow. There's no easy solution. This is what it means for us to be theologians of the cross, like Jacob came to be. That God wrestles with us, not so that he will break our faith, but rather so that he may strengthen our faith. That he strives against us so that he can take us, so he can take our hands and submit them, cement them to himself. And we, like Jacob, like Jacob, can say, I'm not letting go. That's what he does for us. Martin Luther called what Jacob did conquering God. Think about that. This is Jacob conquering God. And when it comes to conquering God, to subduing him, and when it comes to the paradoxical life of faith, there's no better theologian than Luther. So let me just leave you with this quote. He says, God is conquered when faith does not leave off, is not wearied, and does not cease, but presses on and urges on. Even if God hides himself in a room, in the house, and does not want access to be given to anyone, do not draw back, but follow. If he does not want to listen, knock at the door of the room. Raise a shout, for this is the highest sacrifice, not to cease praying and seeking until we conquer him. He has already surrendered himself to us so that we may be certain of victory. For he has bound himself to his promises and pledged his faithfulness with an oath, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. May the Lord grant us such faith and such boldness to strive with God until the day when all striving will cease at the coming of our Lord. Amen.